This is the story of John Allen Chow, a young missionary who loved life, yet gave his to reach the unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. John's heart was to share Christ with the most isolated people on the planet. You'll hear from people who knew John and what drove him to make the ultimate sacrifice. I'm Steve Green with the Charisma Podcast Network, and in this special podcast, we honor a life well-lived. The Voice of the Martyrs is a Christian missions organization dedicated to serving persecuted Christians worldwide and leading other members of the body of Christ into fellowship with them. I'm so honored that they've chosen to sponsor this podcast. The Voice of the Martyrs was founded in 1967 by Pastor Richard Wormbrand, who was in prison for 14 years in communist Romania for his faith in Christ. His wife, Sabina, was in prison for three years. In 1965, they were ransomed out of Romania, and soon thereafter, they established the Voice of the Martyrs. For more than 50 years, the Voice of the Martyrs has encouraged and equipped Christians to fulfill the Great Commission in areas of the world where they are persecuted for just sharing the gospel. They do this through persecution response, Bible distribution, and frontline worker support. I encourage you to subscribe to The Voice of the Martyrs free monthly newsletter at persecution.com. That's persecution.com. I'll tell you this, you'll be moved and encouraged by testimonies of Christians who are persecuted for their faith. You'll also learn how to pray for them and discover practical ways to get involved in helping them advance the Great Commission around the world. Again, you can get this free subscription to The Voice of the Martyrs newsletter at persecution.com. John had prepared himself in a thousand different ways. He had studied linguistics because no one in the world knows the language of the Sintalese people except them, and so he was trying to find linguistic patterns to be able to communicate with them, and on and on it goes. We know that John's death is not in vain, and we're praying that fruit will come of it, but it is a very difficult time for us to do that in a raw and emotional season when you lose somebody. It's hard to take a, an eternal perspective. John's legacy is going to, as it continues to go around the world, raise up a generation of men and women who will go to North Sentinel Island to share the gospel and other places as well. I think it's encouraged missionaries around the world. And for me, I think like many people, it's caused me to ask, what would I do? Do I love Jesus that much that I would lay down my life as John did for the Sentinelese people? We have one chance to reach these people. No one's ever made contact with these people and lived to talk about it. You've just heard audio from the movie, End of the Sphere. Some, including Oral Roberts University President Dr. Billy Wilson, have compared John to Jim Elliott, a missionary killed in Ecuador in 1956, along with four other men, including Nate Saint, whose story was told in the movie, End of the Spear. We had a really good moment in chapel. It was the last chapel of the year around Christmas. We talked about John's story. We compared it to... Uh, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, the missionaries who gave their lives in the Ecuadorian jungle that ultimately led to 
the Gates of Splendor book, Beyond the Gates of Splendor movie, and uh, End of the Spear movie that many of us have seen, and let them know that John's life will have repercussions for a long time. It's going to be studied, talked about, his method, what he tried to do, his preparation, and they can be proud of one of their alums that probably has become the most famous alumnus of Oral Roberts University in our history. I think more people probably know of John Allen Chow now around the world than any alum, alumnus ever. So that's pretty startling, uh, I think, and amazing. Joshua Johnson is executive director at All Nations, Chow's mission organization. He explains the comparison to the missionary martyrs in Ecuador. The the similarities between Kimberley and All Nations missionary John Chow was that you know they both went into an uncontacted tribe and they both got shot um, with arrows and died. But we don't know the extent of this story with the North Sentinel people yet. We are praying that it would be similar because we know that the Aka, the people, the tribal people in Ecuador accepted Christ and said they wanted to follow Jesus. Others were accepted into the tribe that the man who killed Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, actually baptized Steve Saint, Nate's son. That's a beautiful story, and but we just don't know the end of the story with John Chow yet and the North Central people, but we're hoping and praying that Jesus would encounter them. David Shibley, founder and international representative of Global Advance, also sees similarities between John and Jim Elliott. Like Jim Elliott, John didn't live to see his 30th birthday. Like Jim Elliott, who died with a poison-tipped spear in his back, John died evidently in a flurry of arrows. And like Elliot, he was attempting to get the gospel to one of the most remote tribes uh, in the world. Uh, in other words, John was just taking the Great Commission very seriously. Uh, Oswald Smith, the great missionary statesman of many years ago, said, why should anyone hear the gospel twice until everyone has heard it once? Uh, young people are impassioned by a sense of injustice. And I think the greatest injustice is that a person can live on this planet and not hear the gospel, and that the most basic of all human rights is the right to hear the gospel, the right to know that God loves these people, and that Christ died for them. And so I I honor the life of John Challenge, and we need to remember our Lord's promise. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus said, Be faithful unto death, and I will give to you a crown of life. And I'm very confident that uh, John Chow receives that crown. Dr. John Korstad is a biology professor at Oral Roberts University. He sees the similarities between John Chow and the missionary martyrs in Ecuador. Yeah, there's probably not a class that goes by at least once during the semester that I've shared about Nate Sane and Jim Elliott. And the, the quote just haunts me in a good sense, that he is no fool that gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I mean, I've, I've been quoting that for decades, and it just, it wasn't, I didn't know them, of course, but it's just the spirit in that, sensing that when they were at Wheaton, and then answering the call. John Chow, I, I think of in the same way, not to try to immortalize him or to martyr him, uh, to, that is real. He knew what God was calling him to do, and he did it cheerfully and willingly and lovingly. 
and humbly. John followed Jesus Christ to the death. But what was his life like? We looked into his time at Oral Roberts University to find out how John Chow lived. Listen as faculty, friends, even as soccer coach, describe their memories. I'm really honored to have a, uh, someone that I know very well. I've worked with him. He's been my boss. I love him, and I love the university at which he is the president, the president of Oral Roberts University, President Billy Wilson. Dr. Wilson, welcome to the Podcast Network. Thank you, Dr. Green. Great to be with you. Unfortunately, we've been through so much of this at ORU. We've lost some really good students over the years uh, through their mission work. Recently, we've lost John Allen Chow, and I know it broke your heart. It's broke the hearts of our readers, and many of us who've got ties to ORU knew him. And uh, so tell us, in, in, your, in your understanding of the story, uh, how we lost John. Well, Dr. Green, uh, John was a 2014 graduate of Oral Roberts University, um, stellar student here, and a stellar person. We've uh, received response from across the university about John. I'll share some of that uh, in a moment. But uh, John had a burden uh, since he was in high school, even before he came to ORU, to reach out to the unreached peoples of the earth uh, for Jesus Christ and really felt called to missions and felt called to go to the most isolated, unreached groups in the world. Uh, In his studies, uh, just before ORU and while he was here, John identified what he thought was the most isolated people group in the world related to the gospel of Jesus, Mm -hmm. and that was the Sentinelese people on North Sentinel Island, uh, which is under the domain of India, it's just off the coast of Thailand, sort of the middle of nowhere in the uh, Bay of Bengal. And John set about uh, over a course of about six years uh, to make contact in some way with these people. The Indian government has a restriction that it's illegal to go to this island. Uh, John tried to work some legal way to do this, but uh, when that was not possible, Uh, He went by himself because it was considered very dangerous and tried to reach out to these people. Uh, Before that, John had prepared himself in a a, a thousand different ways. Um, He'd taken vaccinations because the people on the island could be endangered by an outsider, uh, their health, by some disease. So he'd done, I think, about 11 vaccinations. He had isolated himself for several days to make sure he wasn't sick. He had done uh, training in the wilderness in order to help him uh, cope with what it would be like to live on uh, this kind of isolated island. He had uh, done reenactment kinds of things of situations he might face there. He had read over 200 books in the last year alone about mismissioned, about the Sentinelese. He had studied linguistics because no one in the world knows the language of the Sentinelese people. Uh, except them, and so he was trying to find linguistic patterns to be able to communicate with them, and on and on it goes. John, uh, according to one friend who's very involved in missions and knew John very, very well, said John was the most prepared missionary he had ever met in the world, and um, and I, that seems to be true. Uh, one um, humorous story here at ORU, uh, somewhat, uh, but I think explains the kind of dedication John had Uh, One of his wingmates in the dorm said every morning they would hear John in the shower screaming. And they'd ask him about it, John, why are you screaming? He said, well, 
taking a cold shower. They said, John, we have hot water at Oregon. You don't have to take a cold shower. He said, I know that, but someday I'm going to be on the mission field. There'll be no warm water, and I want my body to get used to the fact uh, that I need to take a cold shower, even while he was a student here. Somewhere on the morning of uh, November 16th, 17th, right in that time frame, John made his final trip to North Sentinel Island. He had made connection a couple of times before. He, uh, the day before, had been shot at. Uh, the arrow hit his Bible by a young, uh, young man he describes as about 10 years old. Uh, John then overnight considered, he went back to the boat that was offshore of the North Sentinel Island, considered coming home. But from what we can tell, felt like that um, he would abort what God had called him to do if he was to leave his mission at the time. And I think John knew that this isolated group, no one had had the courage for uh, several uh, decades to cross over and try to reach them for Christ. And so he knew that if he came home, maybe no one else would go back. And he felt like God had called him to do that. He knew it it would mean his death or could possibly mean his death. And when he went back on that last morning then, um, it seems from all accounts we can find that John was killed, dragged along the beach, uh, buried by uh, the Sentinelese people, and martyred for his Christian faith and for his attempt to reach uh, this isolated tribe. Uh, we've been saddened, of course, Dr. Green, by that. It hurts our hearts. At the same time, there is a uh, somewhat of a sense among ORU and our alums of gratitude. And um, I don't want to use the word pride, but at least um, a warmth in our hearts to say there was a young man courageous enough that for the love of Jesus alone, and the love of the Sentinelese people, he was willing to give his life to try to tell them about Christ. Yes, sir. And I know you've got a, uh, the praying hands in the front of the campus of Oral Roberts. You've got a plaque there for fallen mission students. Yeah. And unfortunately, we'll be adding that name. Yes. Uh, sometime in the spring, we'll be doing a special service. We call it the Wall of Sacrifice. Uh -huh. um, and it's just a um, simple honor to those who have given their life around the world uh, in service to Jesus Christ. The last inductee was uh, Miles Monroe, an ORU alum, and his wife, who died in a plane crash going to preach the gospel in yes, Bahamas. Sir. So uh, this will be a unique moment um, and a way to honor John in perpetuity here on campus. Yes, sir. President Wilson, I also know that you are a pastor, that you have pastored a lot in your background. And so you've had to pastor some students, faculty, staff uh, through this. And you've had a, a, a very moving chapel where you dealt with some of this. How have you personally tried to shepherd uh, your campus through this loss? Yeah, that's a good question, Dr. Green. Obviously, our students um, shaken, but also uh, shaken in some ways and stirred spiritually in other ways. Uh, the vision of ORU given to our founder uh, in the 1960s at a dinner with Pat Robertson in which Oral wrote the vision on a napkin at, at dinner, if you can believe it, uh, that's carried the university over 50 years now, was yes. raise up your students to hear my voice, to go where my uh, light is seen dim, my voice is heard small, and my healing power is not known, even to the uttermost bounds of the earth. And then God told Oral, their work will exceed yours, and in this I'll be well pleased. In many ways, John Chow lived out this vision yes, to its fullest. He heard God's voice. He went where the light was 
dim or not seen at all. The voice of God could not be heard or heard small, and God's healing power wasn't known. And definitely, North Sentinel Island is the uttermost bounds of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so he did what we call our students to do in our vision statement. Professor Korstad had John Chow in class and knew John was focused on preparing for his mission. Tell us how you met this young man. Well, I probably met John uh, in 2009 uh, when he came for, with his family from Vancouver, Washington for his older brother's graduation from ORU. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when John started at ORU in 2010, uh, he applied to be in the honors program. I was director back then and interviewed him and accepted him right away. And he also took, I think, two classes from me when he was here at ORU. Well, I know he started in pre-med and then finished uh, with a health exercise science major. I, his heart really was, uh, at, at that time, not to go in the, uh, the medical school like his older sister and brother and his father. Mm -hmm. His father, by the way, graduated from ORU Med School in 1988. Amazing. And so John just, uh, he had a, a focus on what he sensed God calling him to do. Mm -hmm. So do you believe that uh, he was also academically gifted? He was bright enough to do about anything he wanted to do? Very much so. I mean, he, he, he could have applied to med school and gotten in easily. John Chow was ORU's soccer team manager for several years. Coach Ryan Bush developed a strong friendship with John, as most people did, who had both a big personality and a caring heart for those on the team who might not know Jesus. He just had a certain charisma about him. I mean, he very joyful young man, and I think that's why the guys wanted him around all the time. Uh, he just he lightened every situation, and obviously sports are intense. So whether you you win, lost, or true, or you were at training getting yelled at, you know, whenever he was there, his attitude was contagious. He was always excited to be wherever he was, um, whether or not there was a reason to be excited or not. John was very confrontational with the guys on the team in their relationship with Jesus. He was like, I understand that you're saying you're a Christian or you're a you're religious in this way, but he was like, I want to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus. And I think for a, for an 18-year-old kid that's dealing with a 22-year-old athlete, um, I actually think that if people think, oh, it's just ORU, you're in a Christian environment, that's actually not an easy thing to do. I don't see a lot of a lot of kids doing that, but he was very forward with the guys on the team, and he would have conversations with me. He would come in the office, and he was like, I just want to make sure. He was like, I understand they're in a Christian environment. But he was like, I want to make sure that every single player has an individual conversation about who Jesus is, about their relationship with Jesus, and he was very keen on that. So do you think that sports helped him to root himself in his mission? Was it an entryway, a door opener for him? But soccer was definitely his avenue. Now, obviously, soccer being an international sport, I think, helped him um, with his mission because, obviously, everywhere you go, culturally, soccer is the accepted sport around the world. So I think it helped him get in, you know, everywhere he was, which was, you know, ultimately his mission was first and foremost to spread the love of Christ. And soccer was kind of the avenue to get him there. Did he also coach overseas some? He had actually had teams he coached? He did. He ran camps and clinics overseas, and then he also went to South Africa as well. 
mm-hmm. and he worked with a, an outreach there that has actually sent some kids to the United States to play soccer, um, but helped teach English there, and he coached soccer while he was there, and then he had a Burmese outreach here on Saturday that he ran with our soccer guys. They were refugee kids, and he facilitated that while he was here, and he got all of our guys actually would come on Saturday, not all of them one time, but they would they would all volunteer one Saturday. We never asked them to do it. They just did it because they love John. So I want to ask you, Coach, how you've dealt with it. How are you personally handling uh, this great martyr? Me, I lost a great friend. I mean, sure. me and John communicated on a regular basis, and and you don't have a lot of friends. You know, I think the, the relationship turned from mentorship to student to friendship after he left. And That's what happens. I, yeah, like I don't have a lot of friends that are just on fire for God that you know are going to go the distance. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I've been doing this for a long time. So, you know, there's a grieving process. Like I lost a friend. I lost a, a battle warrior, somebody that was going to, you know, stand and fight for the same things that I was. And, you know, and then obviously you have a lot of questions on, you know, why, which will get answered at some point. Joshua Johnson's organization, All Nations from Kansas City, Missouri, help prepare Chow to minister to the tribe he was committed to reach. All Nations uh, trains John Chow at our training, our church planting experience training uh, in October of 2017. We helped him in a lot of the disciple-making and the church planting aspects of what would happen if he got accepted onto the island and into the tribe, learn their language, how could that you learn their culture and in a way that they can understand the gospel, understand Jesus, become a disciple, and become disciple-makers that make other disciples. How, how do you speak to your people about John and, and what he did? Right now at All Nations, it's a very uh, sensitive subject because it's raw, it's emotional, it's sure. new, and it's a, it's a hard thing to go through a loss. Uh, of a life, um, but we we count the cost when we follow Jesus, and we are called to lay down our lives, um, and that sometimes means to lay down our lives even unto death. Um, but we know that you know the story is not yet over. Um, that many people now are praying for the North Sentinel people. Um, the island is known throughout the world, and Christians around the world are saying, Jesus, come and speak to these people. Um, and so we know that John's death is not in vain, um, and we're praying that fruit will come of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a very difficult time for us to do that um, in, in a raw and emotional when you lose somebody. Um, yeah. It's hard to take a, an eternal perspective, a long-term perspective. But we know that John is uh, John was an incredible young man that uh, loved Jesus and wanted to obey him. Um, and he, we know from his journal entries at the end, John still said, thank you, Jesus, for choosing me. To reach these people. Um, so, do you think that is an incredible testimony? There's no question. He would say that at the very end. He really tried to count the cost, don't you think? John. 
accepted the cost. And he he knew that this tribe was violent, but he also knew that he was taking some positive steps in the right direction for this tribe to accept him. In his journal, he, he wrote that he believed there were positive things about the first encounter when they accepted some of his gifts, and he believed that going on foot on the island would be a good chance to make a successful contact. You know, he did count the cost and said that he was willing to do whatever it took. Like Joshua Johnson, Matt Staver also saw how committed to missions John Chow was. Matt, who is founder and president of Covenant Journey, got to know John through a Covenant Journey trip to Israel. I met John Chow on a Covenant Journey trip, August of 2015. He was from Oral Roberts University, 23 years old at that time. He had gone on several mission trips to South Africa and even to India. He was a, a young man who was delightful had a contagious smile. In fact, every picture you ever see him in, he's smiling. He loved to share and talk about Jesus, and he wanted to be able to share the gospel of Jesus with whomever he met. You've seen a lot of mission young people come out of college. What did you think of this this young leader? John was one of those Gideon army that God was raising up. And to see someone of that talent use his skills and dedicate his life and be able to communicate with others and just enjoy life, but also enjoy Jesus to share it, was very encouraging. Uh, John was someone who used soccer to also communicate the gospel and to develop relationships. At ORU, he became one of the managers of the soccer team. Sure did. And he also worked uh, with soccer groups, teaching uh, young uh, boys around the world in the United States as well. And that was a way for him to develop friendships so that he could ultimately share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was also an amazing outdoors person. Mm -hmm. He became an ENT. He was someone who led amazing hiking and camping trips throughout the Pacific Northwest. His Facebook is filled with amazing adventures in which he prepared himself for those moments. And really, when you look back, everything he did, his time at Oral Roberts University, his studies in sports science, his preparation to be an ENT, his ability to survive out in inclement places, his ability to just be athletic and to communicate the gospel and to develop friendships, all of that was preparing him for this mission that God had put on his heart since he was in high school. John's approach to this isolated tribe is unfortunately not without controversy. Some are calling him a colonizer with cultural imperialism in his veins, while others describe him as insanely arrogant. Joshua Johnson has seen the media reports that see John Chow as extreme. We know that John Chow was probably the most humble, soft-spoken, learned young man. He was very determined. He really loved others well, loved Jesus well. Um, One of my favorite little testimonies is from one of our fellow All Nations missionaries. And when I was at training with John, that said that his sons would come up to John and play with him and sit on his lap. And John was the type of, of man that, you know, young children and babies would come up to because he was so kind and gentle. Um, it, 
really the the stereotype of what is written, um, what is portrayed out there was really not the core of John's character and his heart for other people. I think he exemplified um, Micah 6-8, and he walked humbly. He was merciful, um, and he was able to do justice in this world. And he wanted the world to know the North Sentinel people. He wanted them to have love and respect, representation, health care, so that they can be lifted up as a community and as a society, as the rightful place as children of God. Dr. Scott Moreau is a missiologist at Wheaton College, which is located just outside of Chicago. He's thought through some of these objections. I think that the general media assumption is here's another adventuring young idiot who does whatever he wants to do and nobody's going to stop him and he dies as a result. And the media see this as a mixed, almost a tragic comedy, if I can use that word together, because it's, it's, it's stereotypical in terms of their idea of what missionaries do. It's tragic in terms of what happened, but also uh, I'd say enough media would consider it misguided. Now, the, the people I've talked with in media and interviewed with have been very empathetic, and they really do want to understand what the motivation was, and they don't fight when I tell them this is a Christian orientation and, and this is what we believe. Uh, at the same time, when I'm looking at the comments on all of the blogs and the websites that are going up, there's there's a lot of vitriol of people who think that we have no right to tell anybody anything about religion, and I would say that's a more contemporary message that didn't exist 40 years ago. And so that's one of the things we're seeing that's fueling some of the, the very strong reactions that we're seeing. One question that reporters and missionaries alike are asking is, was John's contact with the tribe legal? It's a great question. Joshua Johnson isn't certain it was. And Matt Staver thinks we need a kingdom perspective on that question. The only thing that we knew uh, at All Nations was uh, in October, one of his last newsletters that, that John sent to his supporters said that the restricted access permits was lifted and it was now legal to go to the 29 Islands. That included the North Sentinel Islands, and that was the last thing that we knew at All Nations. Once he got to the grounds, we didn't have any contact with him. We don't know how he was able to go and whether what he did was legal or not. Well, you know, if you look at whether or not it's legal or not, uh, and you say if it's illegal, you shouldn't go, you don't understand Scripture. It was illegal for Daniel to pray, and yet he did it anyway, and he ultimately found himself in the lion's den. It was illegal for the three Hebrews not to bow down, and they wouldn't do it, and they found themselves in the fiery furnace, and God rescued them. It was illegal. The disciples were told, some of them, you can get out of jail, but don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Jesus, of course, ultimately was crucified because the people who he was ministering to didn't like what he was saying. Throughout the years of our life in our history as Christians and going back to the Old Testament, people have shared God and the gospel of Jesus Christ from the New Testament on at the risk of their lives. 
So whether it was legal or not, John wanted to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. However, now, whether it should be legal or not, you know, this is a debate that's going on. Uh, there was uh, some in the 1990s tourism, and they ultimately imposed these uh, restrictions on visiting these islands. And then they lifted some of those restrictions in August of 2018. However, you may still have needed a permit to visit this particular island because of the isolation of these people. And, you know, there's this pro-indigenous group that says, just leave them alone. But even from a secular standpoint, think of this. Who are we to say that that young boy or young girl who sits on the shore of North Sentinel Island that looks out over the horizon wondering what is on the other side, who are we to say they don't have a choice? Who are we to say that they ought to be better off if they have low life expectancy? John could not, and he commented in his journal, see any elderly people there. Why are they not there? We don't know. How can people make these snap decisions that it's better for them not to have any contact with the outside world when we don't know about what's going on? If they kill people like John, what are they doing to their own people? What is their health like? What about the young boy who climbs a palm tree and falls down and severely mangles his leg? Is it better just to doom him to death or pain rather than bring someone there who can provide medical treatment to them? And besides the secular, the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives. And if you look at New Tribe's mission, their first five missionaries were martyred because they were going to an unreached people group. They couldn't speak the language. And that's what happened to... Uh, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, they were martyred. But Steve Saint continued to minister to that unreached people group in Ecuador and even baptized the very people that killed his father. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives. It brings light to darkness and sets the captives free, and that was the mission of John Chow. Considering the danger, should John have gone to this tribe? Dr. Scott Moreau weighs in on that question. Uh, I would say a few things. Number one, it's always wiser to go in teams, and yet at the same time, a team might have been more threatening. You don't have to initiate conversations from minute one. Be aware of some of the things that you're doing, the, the type of gift exchange, and pay attention to signals. Being shot at is not a positive signal. And does that mean he should have continued to, to try and reach? Maybe he should have waited a couple of weeks. I, I think continued to go and present the same level of threat to them that clearly they perceived him to be was a mistake that he made. But again, I have the benefit of hindsight, um, and and I I can't say with absolute certainty that I could give him, here are 15 steps you should have taken. But I would say for most Americans, time is on our side, and we don't have to reach them today. It can be tomorrow, it can be next week, it can be next month. Uh, the reality is patience is a huge virtue that might be missing, especially the younger a person is. Dr. Moreau, in, in what way do you think he was prepared? And then the inverse of that, how was he not prepared? Well, I, I, I've seen a lot of criticisms of, of him getting vaccinations and trying to isolate himself. 
and yet then going uh, with a group of fishermen so that the entire idea of isolation was lost when he went out with a group of people who had not isolated themselves. So I think the intent was good. He was aware of the reality of uh, communicable diseases that the people would not have been exposed to. He took steps as best as he understood him, but his understanding was limited. I say, uh, you know, it was said that he had medical training. Well, he had EMT training. He, he wasn't a medical doctor. He wasn't an epidemiologist, someone who studies the transmission of disease. It would have been helpful for him to find out from somebody what are the right protocols to take. Now, that's on the disease side. In terms of the gospel message, uh, the reality is uh, the language, as I understand it right now, people don't even know what language they speak. And, and shouting out to them in close, well, it is an African language, and apparently they are African-descended. Uh, there are over a thousand languages in Africa. Who knows what direction that could have come from? You know, you, you've got a lot of things like that, that, that again, I can look at. And sometimes some of those things are simply silly mistakes. Uh, sometimes they had deadly consequences. And clearly going back to the island, having been shot at, was uh, was a mistake with deadly consequences that I have the advantage of hindsight in looking at and saying, I wouldn't have done it that way. And I, I understand, again, from reports I've been seeing that there were people who were willing to go with him, but he wanted to go by himself, perhaps going with a second person, uh, perhaps doing nothing more than uh, sitting out in the boat for uh, day after day for a week and not making any moves on the island. So they got used to his presence. You know, you can think of a hundred different things he potentially could have done differently. Uh, the, the challenge is, is we have to do, we, we have to look at what he actually did and you can find mistakes in it. But I would say if you looked at my time in missions, I was a missionary for 10 years, you would find just as many mistakes. They just didn't have deadly consequences. David Shibley of Global Advance is sometimes bothered by believers' reactions to the choices John had to make. I, I, I'm not disturbed by non-Christians who uh, have been sometimes very caustic and, I believe, cruel in their remarks concerning uh, the choice that John made. Uh, I understand that because they simply don't get it. They don't, they don't understand uh, different worldview that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, what is concerning to me is uh, the the questioning of the motives, John's motives, uh, among some believers, uh, even some missiologists, some who are friends of mine. And I, I think it's very important because there, there have been accusations uh, kind of bringing John into a guilt by association of a supremacist attitude uh, that missionaries, some missionaries have carried in the past, and certainly that is part of the mixed bag of mission history. We need to acknowledge that. But the very supremacist, supremacist attitude that missionaries are accused of is often present in the attitude that is willing to let groups like the Sentinelese slowly die and become extinct because we're not willing to grant them access to those life-saving measures that could uh, not only extend their life, but uh, extend the viability of them as a tribal people. So there is a lot to talk about in days ahead, but right now, 
I think we simply need to honor the life of John Chow and ask, Lord, what would you have me to do? And I'm praying for a great response among Christian young people, uh, as there was in 1956, to say we'll take their place and we will do our part to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Matt Staver also knew the Chow family. I wanted to know how the family is coping in the wake of John's death. What do you feel they're, they're thinking these days? What, what's the future like for them? Well, John's dad is a uh, psychiatrist, and John was born while he was in a residency in Alabama. His mother is an attorney. Uh, they have obviously, like any family, uh, they've been very close. His brother Brian and his sister Mandy, they all were very close-knit. And they had to spend Thanksgiving the first time wondering what happened to their son, their brother. And the mother has had a difficult time, as any parent would, just wondering if there is that glimmer of hope that possibly he is still alive. And that's why I think it's important that John's body ultimately be returned to the family so that they can have closure. Anybody who loses someone, but they can't see them and finish that grieving process it just makes it more difficult. However, I do know this, that it is their Christian faith that has ultimately brought them through. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, in John's journal, the letter that he wrote to his mom and dad and his brother and sister, he says, don't be mad at these people or at God, but live your lives in obedience to Jesus Christ. And so they posted shortly after this that they forgive the very people that took their son's life, their brother's life. So, you know, it's their Christian faith that's getting them through. And I think John's legacy is going to, as it continues to go around the world, raise up a generation of men and women, even Mm -hmm. now, who will go to North Sentinel Island to share the gospel and other places as well. I think it's encouraged missionaries around the world. And for me, I think like many people, it's caused me to ask, what would I do? Mm-hmm. Do I love Jesus that much that I would lay down my life as John did for the Sentinelese people? And it really has been very impactful for me personally, and I think it's doing that for people around the world. For all of our listeners who, are, who hear John's story, speak to us about how we make it relevant. What do we do with it in our day-to-day life? What should we believe about what he did, and how should it affect our lives? Well, I think it should affect our lives by just even listening to John Chow. Um, Let me just read. He says, you guys, to his mom and dad, his brother and sister, might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please Mm -hmm. do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. He concludes his letter by saying it's not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshiping in their own language, as Revelation 7, 9 through 10 states. I love you all, and I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. I think that speaks volumes, and that speaks to all of us wherever we are, whether we're going to an isolated tribe whether we're at home, whether we're in the work environment, in the community, in our neighborhood, at church, those words reverberate through history. John's words literally, I think, will continue to echo around the planet. 
You know, we all want our lives to count. John Allen Chow's life on this earth was a mere 26 years. We know his life continues into eternity, but Dr. Shibley, what can we do to see that John's life was relevant in his dying? That his life was necessary, that it was important, that it had significance? I think there are several things we can do. First of all, John requested some things of us in his diary, that should he die, he requested several things. He requested that this not be laid to the charge of the Sentinelese people, and so we need to honor that request. Uh, he requested prayer for their uh, eventual evangelization and turning to Christ. We need to honor that. And then in his writings, evidently just days and possibly even hours before his death, he was asking us the question, I know what I am to do in response to the Great Commission. What are you doing? Have you responded uh, to that? And so I, I think each of us uh, needs to ask ourselves that question. John wrote something about, uh, you guys might think I'm crazy, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. I think we need to go back in church history, Dr. Green, and, and to ask, was it worth it for Francis Xavier to die face down on a beach in an endeavor to evangelize one more island? Were those five gallant missionaries in 1956 in Ecuador, were they crazy or, in fact, uh, did they lift the whole vision of the church worldwide to its evangelistic and discipling mandate? That's what uh, they did, and we need to honor that. Paul was clear, not only our Lord who gave the Great Commission, but Paul said we're debtors to everyone to get the gospel to them, Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Peter said, God isn't desirous that anyone perish, but that everyone come to repentance. And so I believe that John was, was acting uh, fully uh, within a biblical framework. So what we can do for John is to ask ourselves those same questions in light of the fact that we as followers of Jesus are under the same mandate John Chow was under, to make disciples of all nations, to get the gospel to every person. Are we uh, obeying the assignment that the Lord has given to us in that greater context of world evangelization? And uh, I, I want to honor him for that. What do we do now with the Sentinelese? Do we go back? He wanted them to meet Jesus. I, great question, and, and I believe that is one of the big questions out of this. They remain a, an unevangelized tribe, therefore, they remain our responsibility to some degree. I'm not, and when I say our, I'm talking about the body of Christ around the world. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to explore the very best ways to get to them. Uh, some are saying that John may have been there illegally, although there is new information coming out that would dispute that. Again, we, we need to remember that we're under a higher mandate, and that is to, and until the Great Commission is rescinded, the great missionary Amy Carmichael called it the Great Unrepealed Commission. Until that commission is repealed, uh, we're under mandate to get the gospel to these dear people. What if John's body is never recovered? Dr. Korstad believes something spiritual will happen through John's physical body planted on that Indian Ocean island. John's flesh may be buried there. His spirit, I, I really sense this, Steve, is is strong. 
the blood of Christ flowing through John and his own physical blood, that's powerful. Uh, and we don't know what's going to happen. I believe that it is already impacting the people there in ways that we, we don't know. Every tongue, tribe, and nation will worship Christ on the throne. John Allen Chow chose to lay down his life so that the last of the unreached may live into eternity. How will you honor John's sacrifice? What will you choose? The Voice of the Martyrs would like to share more testimonies of Christians who are persecuted for their faith every month. Learn how to pray for these Christians and discover practical ways to get involved in helping them advance the Great Commission by subscribing to the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter at no cost at persecution.com. Once again, at persecution.com, you can sign up for the newsletter free of charge from the Voice of the Martyrs. Thank you so much, Voice of the Martyrs, for sponsoring this podcast. This has been a production of the Charisma Podcast Network. Steve and Joyce Strang are the founders and owners of CPN. Dr. Steve Green is the executive producer of the Charisma Podcast Network. We intend to honor God with every podcast and remain thankful to our advertisers and supporters who make these podcasts possible.